0: My name's Clara, and this is Sandstone. Sandstone is a storytelling podcast that seeks to understand the nuanced worlds of Arabia and Appalachia, and the people that call these places home. My name is Joellen Hazlett. I'm Clara's mom, and I was born in Virginia, moved to West Virginia as a Child, I've lived in Appalachia really most of my life.
1: I'm Jim Hazlett. Moved to West Virginia in 1999 to the farm where Joe Allen was raised.
0: The love of your life.
1: The love of my life. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> was that enough? Because I didn't. Say
0: yeah, well, a you lot. didn't say anything about kids and stuff, so. which is the most important um, part of your life.
1: Procreation.
0: Yes. <laughs> we got some acreage there on the farm and uh, raise our kids there. We have seven. Clara is number five in our lineup. My grandfather was a dairy farmer and my mama was a farm girl. My dad, he calls himself Farmer Jim, but we all know that's not true. He's more a Jim of all trades. And for me, I never quite nailed down the cutesy farmer girl vibe. I tended more toward nerdy tomboy who made bird books for fun. The dirt road leading up to our house is secured by two gates and two cattle guards, which is pretty effective, keeps the people out and the cattle in for the most part. Sometimes the cows do escape, which is stressful if you've ever had that experience. The closest town is the proud residence of approximately 888 people. We do have a substantial deer population, though, which sometimes ends up on your windshield or your dinner plate, and sometimes in that order. I do, in fact, speak from experience. Which, side note, I feel like people might be freaked out by that, but... Honestly, I feel like it's a very economical system. If you accidentally run over a deer, at least eat it. I don't know. West Virginians get this reputation of being gun-wielding hillbillies. And of course, it seems like that if you grew up in an urban area. But just for a second, imagine that it's the middle of the night, you're snoozing away, and all of a sudden, you hear a racket coming from your chicken coop. You're not going to go back to sleep. You're going to grab your twenty-two and run outside in your PJs, and you're going to shoot the son of a gun who's trying to eat your chickens. It's probably a weasel or a raccoon. I shot my first deer at age 12, It was also my last year. My hunting prowess peaked and subsequently plummeted. But it was a very proud milestone. At church that Sunday, I was personally mentioned during the service. I got a shout out. Praise the Lord, Clara Jo shot her first deer. The congregation went wild. We went to church on Sunday mornings and evenings, and also Wednesdays, and sometimes on Mondays. Yeah, it's always been a really big part of our life, our Christian faith. I wasn't raised a particularly conservative Christian, but I tended more that way. I got more interested in evangelical Christianity, and I mean, my experience with God changed my life, and it was very authentic, and so I tried to live that. Were we Mennonite at some point, or is that a big lie?
1: Um, no, that's actually true. We were for I was a, a number of years. <laughs> I mean, we didn't ride around in buggies and, um... Paint our bumpers black. Didn't paint our bumpers black. Well, when we moved to Wheeling area, I mean, we found a local church that was nearby that was Free Methodist, and that's where we made friends, and got involved.
0: My family sat in a red pew at the back of the church, adjacent to the sound man, who was my father. Both he and my mom were Sunday school teachers, and my dad was infamous among the children of the church for encouraging them to, quote, kill the plate, And the plate usually consisted of cupcakes or donuts, anything with corn syrup. And yes, this availability of corn syrupy goodness, it definitely did play a role in my enthusiasm for church activities, but I also genuinely enjoyed going to church. It was a place of worship, but also a space for community. A community that offered multi-generational fellowship and some of my longest friendships. We did potlucks and went on hayrides, I sang in the children's choir, and from this religious background, I derived an uncompromising moral compass, guided by three major values, God, family, country. A kind of patriotic trinity. So, when men in turbans showed up on my TV screen in the early 2000s, I was horrified.
1: Anybody know what that smoke is and lower? Another one just hit the building. Wow. Oh God, another building. Wow, another one just hit it hard.
0: Another one just hit the bull side. United 9-3. Have you got information on that yet? Yeah, he's down. He
1: did
0: not land. And I would shut my eyes, but I could still hear the AK forty sevens and the Allahu Akbar's Allahu
1: Akbar! Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar!
0: Um, Osama bin Laden and his minions were launching a three-pronged attack on everything that mattered to me. My God, my country, and if you don't remember, Osama bin Laden was hiding out on our farm and therefore also endangering my family. Three strikes, man, really tested me here. The United States, to me, was the best country in the world. Why did they hate us? And why did they hate me?
1: They hate our freedoms, our freedom of religion, our freedom of speech.
0: And I wasn't a fearful kid, besides Osama Bin Laden, that is. I climbed trees and swam in creeks, and I loved it when my sisters would do French nails, or French manicure, whatever they're called, because that meant I could get as much dirt under my fingernails as possible, and no one would force me to bathe, which was awesome. But this terrorist thing, I took very personally. I wasn't supposed to use the word hate. But... I hated two individuals, Osama bin Laden and Satan, which, in my mind, they were basically one and the same. I couldn't physically act upon my hatred for Satan, but I got it in my mind that I could do something about this Osama character. So I strategized my revenge. I would serve in the FBI, the fabulous Bureau of Investigation. That followed, I carried a plastic briefcase and I sported an earpiece listening device, which I most appropriately used to eavesdrop on my sister's phone calls. The West Virginia chapter of Spy Club was established in my bedroom. There were four other active members, and although we did conduct several investigations, I felt that there had to be more to this career than tracking down the prank caller from last night's sleepover. So, I started job hunting, and while looking on the FBI website, I discovered that Arabic was the FBI's most needed language. To get a head start, I saved up some cash and bought an Arabic for dummies book, which made me feel more like a dummy Those books always tend to do that with me. You, like, start out on a bad note with them. It's like, well, of course I'm going to feel like a dummy if you keep calling me a dummy. And then you get into this nasty cycle. I just feel like it's a negative learning environment. But here I am. I'm, like, 12 years old, armed with my invisible ink and my Arabic for Dummies book, Collecting Dust on My Bookshelf. And surprisingly, in the hills of West Virginia, just not a lot of action. You know, I had no case, no leads, and not even one single FBI job offer. Needless to say, I was pretty disappointed. But as the saying goes, all good things come to those who greedily and relentlessly pursue them. Serendipity. She dealt me a pretty sweet hand.
1: And if you remember, I introduced you to Fatima and she was very bright and friendly and I thought, well, this would be nice if she could meet Clara and talk to her a little bit about Arabic. And so, you know, that started the whole journey.
0: works at the local university and that year there was a girl from Bahrain in one of his classes and if you don't know where Bahrain is, I didn't either. It's a little island off the coast of Saudi Arabia but apparently they spoke Arabic there so I was like yes this is everything I've been waiting for. First and foremost things were finally coming together for my career but secondly and maybe more importantly... I would get to hang out with college students, which was kind of a big deal, but I played it cool. My dad would drop me off in the minivan, and I would meet Fatima in the college's student union. The first time I met her, she was wearing a loose headscarf and leggings, and I was like, not how I pictured you, because up until this point, I had never met a Muslim, and she wasn't what I expected. She was a professional makeup artist, and very fashionable. And keep in mind, fashion and makeup are two realms which I have little to no experience and or interest. So I was very impressed by her. And not just because she was a college student. She was patient and kind, as one has to be, to sacrifice her evening to hang out with an overly inquisitive 14-year-old. She taught me the characters of the Arabic alphabet, and I would scribble them vigorously in my notebook. But I didn't use invisible ink because I thought that might draw too much suspicion. And by the end of the year, I was still trying to figure out how to put the dots on the shapes that make letters that I couldn't pronounce. But Fatima had to go back to Bahrain and I recommenced the search for the destiny that I was composing for myself. But this time, I found a partner in crime.
2: People tell me all the time, like, oh my gosh, you don't seem like you lived in West Virginia. And I'm like, well, explain to me what you think I should be like then.
0: This is Chessie. Chessie and I were in Pony Club together, and she was the ultimate horse girl. Everything that I aspired to be, but never was. She also lived on a hill. And, like me, Chessie had this profound desire To experience the world beyond the hilltops where we were raised.
2: I would literally spend hours on Google Maps dropping that little thing down on roads in foreign countries and seeing what they look like. I would do that too. Really? (laughs) The immigration patterns a couple generations ago into West Virginia because of the coal mines and stuff was primarily like Irish, Italian, or German. And I think just that is like the only cultural contact that, like, I could say that I've had through anything other than just, like, the rural communities of West Virginia, until college. My dad's side of the family is Italian. I think that gave me the push to want to learn Italian, so I started studying Italian to be able to communicate with my cousins in Italy since, like, middle school.
0: Neither of her parents spoke Italian, so naturally, Chessie decided to teach herself.
2: And then I think that has opened my awareness to want to learn about other things around the world, and then I got interested in different languages, which opened my doors.
0: And with some manipulation, I convinced her to also learn Arabic with me.
2: Well, I think it was because I did the early college program that West Virginia developed, so people from Brook High School and Wheeling Central had the opportunity to take some college classes at the university. And I remember you had said that you wanted to learn Arabic. I was looking out on campus for people who look like possible candidates. A.K.A. <laughs> <Okay, laughs> profiling. <laughs> yeah. And I saw this one girl and she had a job on. Well, I was like, I'm going to ask her if I see her again. And then I didn't see her again. And then it was like a really weird coincidence because I was in the high school student lounge where we kept all our stuff. So she approached me asking where some center was. It literally was almost like an answered prayer. And then I actually was like, oh my gosh, this is so awkward, but I'm so happy like you came and asked me. My friend is like wanting to learn Arabic. And once you'd be interested in tutoring, I was like, we'll pay. And she was like, no, 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 you don't have to pay me. You don't have to pay me. But yes, take my email.
0: Kaffa came from Yemen. She wore a traditional dress and a tight hijab wrapped around her unmade face. Kaffa, Chessie, and I, we soon became a little gang, We met up about once a week, and the intention was always to study and learn, which we did some of, but mostly we just became friends. Remember when we put on the
2: like hijabs? And she put hijabs on us. I still have the picture somewhere. And we went to your house, and then your grandma was like, "Who was your foreign friend?" She has a thing
0: on her head. <laughs> I remember putting the hijabs on too because Kafa said that I looked like a slug, and I was like, <laughs> "Oh my gosh, I do."
2: I remember you too. <laughs> a slug.
0: Okay, to be fair, not everyone can look good in hijabs.
2: (laughs) I think I kind of wish I could wear one to cover up my horrible hair. It's like covering up your hair, like not everyone has nice hair. (laughs) (laughs) She was over my house. And she just walks in with a bag of groceries to cook us dinner. You were there. I was just like, "Coffee, you don't have to cook us dinner. And she's like, no, no, in Yemen we cook for everybody. We are hospital and that's what we do. And she's like, I can't invite you over because I have a dorm, so I'm bringing the hospitality to you. And then she not only cooked for us, but she also washed all of our dishes. There are some dishes already in the sink. She washed all of them. <laughs> And then she dried them, and I was like, oh, but we have a dishwasher. And I was like, I'll just do it anyway. She put everybody else before her, and like the value she had and what mattered to her was so pure and so like, correct.
0: Kaffa brought henna to a sleepover once. Henna is a plant dye used to decorate women's bodies, for special occasions, or sleepovers, as you like. And usually in the US, henna comes in a neat tube of paste. But this was Yemeni henna, and the paste was thick and chunky, and it came in a little jar. And so as she started to apply this paste to my hands, I was like, ooh. Also, I had to go pee, so I got a little bit stressed out, Like, how am I supposed to wipe with this chunky paste caked on my hands? When I expressed this concern, she was like, oh, no worries. I'll do it for you. And I was like, what? I mean, maybe it's TMI, but I feel like this demonstrates her generosity. I would never do that for anyone. I was really honored in a weird way but I strangely didn't have to go anymore. (laughs) For the next three months, my fingernails were stained with this deep Dorito orange color, and every time I would raise my hand at school, I would be like, please God, let no one notice my Dorito nails. And this was something I had never experienced before. My hands stained with a foreign dye, and my body decorated with a tradition that wasn't mine. And in my bedroom, she would roll her prayer mat to the east, towards Mecca. And if you remember, my bedroom was the West Virginia Spy Club headquarters. And I'm like, what is happening? This was definitely not part of the plan. Quite honestly, I was confused. Kaffa, yes, she was the kindest person I had ever met, but she worshipped a god named Allah, the same name I had heard shouted countless times on the nightly news. I was Protestant, Chessie was Catholic, and Kaffa was Muslim. And we were all serious about our faiths. And we did our due diligence at trying to convert each other. Um, We all failed. Well, after
2: meeting with Klaasai, I definitely bought a Quran. Actually, she bought me one. I would kind of feel a little guilty, though, reading it. Not because guilty is in the aspect that like I shouldn't be reading this because it's not my religion, but guilty in the fact that it's like, I shouldn't be spending this time reading that when I should be spending the time reading the Bible.
0: That's interesting, because I I remember also feeling guilty reading the Qur'an. I I somehow felt like I was betraying my own religion. Yeah, I did feel like that. But
2: I think it's okay to read.
0: So instead of trying to convert each other, we just talked, and we listened. And I remember one day, Kaffa proposed something. She said, I wish we could change places for a year, and change religions too. And I thought, well, I mean, you could try to do that, but at the end of the day, you would come back to your own religion. And she said, no, truly submit to another faith and see how it would change you. And I thought about that a lot. If I had grown up in a Muslim country as a Muslim girl, how would I be different? What would it feel like to wash myself before prayer and pray on a mat to a foreign god? Kaffa explained that sometimes she feels so overwhelmed by God that she cries. And to me, this was impossible. Only my Christian God could evoke that kind of emotion. And as I got to know more about her faith, I realized that it wasn't so different from mine. I would tell her a story about Moses, and she would tell me a story about Musa. And at the end of the story, we were like, what? He the same person. And the same happened for Joseph, who is Yusuf, and Yaqub, who is Jacob.
2: For all the Catholics out there listening, the Catechism itself does say that Judaism, Islam, and Christianity all have a right to salvation, and heaven, because they all are monotheistic religions that stem from Abraham, the original prophet. And for me, I practice Christianity. That's what I side with, because I think that way works best for me. But I think, like, after spending time with her and seeing how her joy came and how happy of a person she was, I wanted to get confirmed Catholic, but I was kind of just like, whatever, like, and eventually I want to get, like, confirmed. But being around her, she was so close and so dedicated to her religion I knew that like, I wanted that for my religion, and it just pushed me so hard that I actually went and like finished getting confirmed in the Catholic Church, even though they're a different religion. So I was just like, I want to feel the same connection to like my religion that she feels to hers.
0: Kaffa and I, we shared the same moral compass, God, family, and country. Hers was a different God, a different family, and a different country. But her compass seemed to be guiding her pretty well.
2: You can just feel her happiness and, like, feel her, like, passion and compassion and, like, wanting to do well for others. Literally, like, she was the most beautiful human being, like, inside and out that I have ever met.
0: In the next episode of Sandstone, we'll meet Kaffa and her husband, Andrew, a fellow mountaineer born and bred in Ravenswood, West Virginia.
2: Me saying I was in love with
1: a Middle Eastern woman would have been a shock in and of itself, but the fact that she was from another religion was just another blow that I don't think that they could have ever expected.
0: This project is supported in part by the Critical Language Scholarship Alumni Development Fund. The Critical Language Scholarship Program is sponsored by the U.S. Department of State with funding provided by the U.S. government. Thank you for listening.